0: Friendships are things we don't often think too much about. We we just have friends and we enjoy their company and that's it. But there is such incredible power in a God-ordained friendship. And God, God means for us to lay hold of that power. Hi, I'm Bernie Diamond and thank you so much for joining me again on Christianity Works. As I said, there is such incredible power in a good friendship. As I look back on my life, I can see how my really good friends, the ones who stuck with me through thick and thin, the ones who gave me the hard advice when I needed it, how those friends have literally shaped who I've become. I'm sure you can see that too as you look back on your life. There is such incredible power in a good friendship. Amen. So let's head into God's Word and please do stay tuned because in just a few minutes I'll be telling you about our latest life application booklet. It's called How to Build Life-Changing Friendships. And I'd love to send you a free copy to help you develop rich and powerful relationships in this year that lies ahead. Today we're continuing on in a series of messages that I've called A Friend in Need is a Friend Indeed," And I really want to take a look at the heart of friendship, what friendship is all about. Because I wonder whether in this disposable world in which we live, whether we're only too prepared to trash friends who don't suit us. People who don't always tell us what we want to hear, people who don't pander to our whims. Now don't get me wrong, I believe there are some people that we all know that we shouldn't have as close friends because they'll do us more harm than good. We talked about that last week on the program. But we live increasingly in a world where there are so many other distractions. Well, if our friends are a bit too difficult to get on with, we just ditch them and we immerse ourselves in a rapidly growing range of entertainment options. And that is, in fact, what a lot of people are doing. They're kind of cocooning themselves in things that please them and in so doing withdrawing step by step from meaningful friendships. It kind of works for a while, but my, what a lonely place that ends up being. I wonder where you are right now in your life when it comes to the friendship stakes, huh? When some young lawyer schooled in the Old Testament law of Moses, which is what lawyers in the first century of Israel relied on, when this lawyer asks Jesus, in effect, out of all the commandments in the law, and there are, the scholars tell me, around 613 commandments, which ones were the most important, Jesus was very quick to answer. Mark chapter 12, verse 29. The first is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Then the scribe said to him, You're right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and besides him there is no other, and to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself. This is much more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. After that, no one dared ask him any more questions. And the thing that really leaps out for me in this is not so much the bit about loving God. I mean, as absolutely vital as that is, you kind of expect the Son of God to say that. The bit that kind of leaps out for me is that we should love our neighbours as ourselves. And the scribe, the lawyer, replies, you're right, Rabuni. In fact, loving God and loving others, well, those things are so much more important than any religious ritual we'd care to name. Loving our neighbours, making friends, serving them with all that we are is more important than sitting in a church, than singing songs or listening to a sermon, as important as all those things, of course, are. The word used for love here is agape, which means unconditional love, sacrificial love. And the word used for neighbor is friend. You shall love your friends with all that you are unconditionally, without reservation and sacrificially. This is precisely what Jesus is saying here. And it follows right on from loving God with all that we are. In fact, it's the flip side of that coin, if you will. Now, if we should love our friends as we love ourselves, then let's just stop and think for a minute, how is it that we love ourselves? Do we care for ourselves, provide for ourselves, protect ourselves, nurture ourselves? Yeah, by and large we do. And if we didn't have a roof over our heads, we'd do everything we could to get one. If we didn't have food to eat, we'd do everything we could to get food. If we were drowning, we'd do everything we possibly could to get air and survive. It turns out that not only do we have a strong survival instinct, we have rather a strong provision instinct. We want to survive and thrive. And we do what we need to do to make those things happen. So right here, Jesus is actually saying, that's how you love you. Now love your friends in exactly the same way. Do you see the power of what he's saying here? Take this survive and thrive love that we have for ourselves, and in exactly the same way that you apply it to yourself, Jesus is saying to you and to me, apply it to your friends, to your neighbors. Now, when it comes to doing the whole survive and thrive love for ourselves, by and large, it's pretty much not of a sacrifice. We look after ourselves. We look after our family. We provide for them. We're kind of hardwired to do that making sure that I'm safe and I'm fed and I'm well provided for, OK, I have to get up each morning and I have to go to work to earn a crust to make that happen. I can't just lounge around in front of the television all day. But that's not a sacrifice. It's just what I do for me and for my family. And yet when we take the love we have for ourselves and we start doing with it what Jesus is saying here, loving our friends the way we love ourselves, all of a sudden it can seem like a huge sacrifice. Can I tell you something? Love is always a sacrifice. And this unconditional love that Jesus is calling each one of us to have for our friends can be a huge sacrifice. Unconditional love, agape love, comes at a price because it's unconditional. And Jesus is calling us to follow him into loving our friends with that sort of love. And as he does that, he makes it abundantly clear that it's going to cost us something. Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, Jesus told his disciples, if anyone to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Loving friends, loving them the way God means for us to love them, loving them in the way that is so much more important than any religious ritual under the sun is about laying down our lives for them. It's about putting their needs before our needs. It's about sacrificing what we want for them. Do you see how radically different God's take on friendship is from the world's approach? Many people have friends because of what they can get out of the friend. Companionship, maybe money or a business deal or a good time. Or... And when they're no longer of any use, we just kind of toss them on the scrap heap. Done with them. No good to me anymore. Move on. And yet the people whom we choose as friends... We're meant to love with all the drive that we have to love ourselves to survive and to thrive. With all the instinct we have to provide for ourselves, we're meant to take that drive and that instinct and love our friends with that. Unconditionally, in the same way that we love ourselves, dying to self, sacrificing for our friends, and in God's scheme of things, this comes second only to loving God himself with all that we are. Being a friend means laying down our lives. Being a friend means being there for someone no matter how badly they may be acting up right now. It's about denying ourselves, taking up that grisly, brutal cross of sacrifice and following Jesus. We talk about friendship. There's one young man, Jonathan, whose story in the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel, I, I simply can't go past. I want to unpack that story a bit more with you today because it's like a powerful case study of what we've just been talking about. Now, we met Jonathan, King Saul's son, last week on the program. Saul had been appointed king against God's will and counsel, mind you, and after some initial successes, he turned out to be something of a disaster. And so, God had the prophet Samuel anoint a new king, young David. But as God's favour and the people's support and all the success shifted away from Saul onto David, his anointed successor, King Saul became incredibly jealous and bitter and twisted and several times he tries to have David killed. So young David spends several years on the run from Saul, during which time Saul tries to kill him, as I said, a number of times. Yet time and time again, God saves him through a friend, Jonathan, Saul's son. Let's have a read, 1 Samuel chapter 19, beginning at verse 1. Saul spoke with his son Jonathan and with all his servants about killing David, but Saul's son Jonathan took great delight in David. Jonathan told David, My father Saul is trying to kill you. Therefore, be on guard tomorrow morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. It turns out that Saul's son, the very man who, according to human logic, should be next in line for the throne, decides to save David's life. You have to ask yourself why. Because Jonathan took great delight in David. That's what it says, 1 Samuel chapter 19, verse 1. Something somehow inside Jonathan clicked. He could see what everyone else could see. He could see the almighty hand of God on David's life. He could see the power of God on David, the favor of God on David. He could see the humility and power, the goodness of this man, David, who had been anointed as the next king. And so he chose to become David's friend. He stands up to his all-powerful father, King Saul, And he defends David, at some risk, you'd have to say, to his own position, even to his own life. Remember, Saul was the king. Saul could have him struck down and killed. Such was the power of the king. And this wasn't the only time that Jonathan stepped in to save David. He did it several times as David emerged as Saul's rival for the throne. David was travelling through the country with hundreds of fighting men and and blind Freddy could see he was going to be king sometime soon. I mean, blind Freddy could see that Saul was on his way out. And it's in this context that the thing that really intrigues me is that instead of crossing over into David's camp, instead of deserting his despotic father, Jonathan stays with a king, as it turns out, to the bitter end. Why? Why would Jonathan have done that? I remember a great scene in my favourite British comedy, Yes, Prime Minister, when the Prime Minister asks his personal private assistant, Bernard Woolley, he says, Bernard, whose side is the civil service on? And Bernard, with a smirk, answers, oh, Prime Minister, the winning side. It's funny, but it cuts so close to the bone, because when there's rivalry, what we naturally want to do is to position ourselves on the winning side so that we can have an ongoing role in the victory and what happens thereafter. But instead, Jonathan positions himself deliberately on the losing side. Why? Well, it turns out that he does it for his friend David because that wasn't the only time where Jonathan's position as his father King Saul's son was able to be used to save David's life. He did it several times. And in the end, because Saul has so badly turned against God in his despotic, sinful behaviour to cling to power, because Saul consults a medium, God allows Saul and his sons... To be killed in battle. Let's have a read. 1 Samuel chapter 31, beginning at verse one. Now the Philistines fought hard against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines, and many fell on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines killed Jonathan and Abinadab and Malchishua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard upon Saul. The archers found him, and he was badly wounded. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, so that these uncircumcised may not come and thrust me through and make sport of me. But his armor-bearer was unwilling, for he was terrified. So Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. When his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died with him. So Saul and his three sons and his armor-bearer and all his men died together on that same day. When the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they forsook their towns and fled too, and the Philistines came and occupied them. It turns out that Jonathan perished with Saul because he hung on to the losing camp in order to protect his friend David, who, who went on to become king. He laid down his life for David, and that... That's what, according to God, a friend is. Someone who'll lay down their lives for us. It's precisely the sort of friend you and I are looking for. And can I tell you, it's precisely the sort of friend that God is calling you and me to be. Isn't it hard sometimes when everything and everyone is screaming at us to save our own skins and ditch our friends when push comes to shove? Does it hurt sometimes to sacrifice for our friends? You betcha it does. I mean, you betcha. But without that sort of commitment... What does friendship really stand for? Is it just two people using one another? Or is there a soul connection? Is it an expression of unconditional love of God that he showed to you and me when he sent his son Jesus to die for us on that cross? I'm a preacher, and from time to time I guess I've been known to preach up a storm. But the greatest sermon I will ever, ever preach is the way I live my life, the sort of friend that I am, what I'm prepared to sacrifice, the degree to which I am prepared to take up that grisly cross and follow Jesus out into the lives of those who need to know him. That's the greatest sermon you and I will ever preach. And we're going to do that by looking at Jesus. I mean... What better way to do that? Jesus is born as a baby in Bethlehem. He grows up in Nazareth amidst humble surroundings as a carpenter's son. Did he have friends as a lad? Well, that's not something we really see, but you have to imagine he did. And then one day it's time to step out from his role as a carpenter's son, and sometime in his early 30s, he begins his public ministry with his baptism in the Jordan River by John the Baptist. And not long after that, he starts to call some disciples to his side. Now, He had lots of disciples. A disciple was someone who followed a rabbi. And Jesus, the rabbi, had lots of them. He was doing amazing miracles. He was speaking in ways people just didn't expect. Have a listen. If you've got a Bible, grab it. We look at Matthew chapter 4, beginning at verse 23. Jesus went through Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and and curing every disease and every sickness among the people. So his fame spread through all Syria, and they brought to him all the sick, those who were afflicted with various diseases and pains and demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he cured them all. And great crowds followed him from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. But out of those great crowds, he chose 12, just 12 disciples. Matthew chapter 10, beginning at verse 2. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, also known as Peter, then his brother Andrew, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. He did that because he knew that if his ministry was going to live on beyond his time here on earth, if the coming of the Son of God was going to have an impact a hundred years on, a thousand years on, two thousand years on and more, He was going to have to pass on his passion and his teaching to a handful of others who would pass it on to more and more across the world and down through the ages. And when you stop and think about it, what he knew was ultimately that it was friendship that was going to change the world. I mean, doesn't that blow you away? Without those friends, without those apostles, you and I wouldn't be sitting here believing in Jesus today. The church exists today. God's word is being preached today. Lives are being transformed today. People are meeting Jesus today. Because friendship was and remains the cornerstone of God's plan to reconcile people back to him. Just let that sink in for a minute. Do you see, friendship isn't some, some side story. It's the main story. And these disciples lived with Jesus, traveled with Jesus, were admonished by Jesus, watched how the Son of God handled himself, saw his miracles. All this happened because he chose them and he drew them close and he called them friend. He was their rabbi. They were his learners, which is what the word disciple really means, to be a learner. And they lived with him on the road for the best part, I guess, of three and a half years. And this rabbi-disciple relationship was very much a hierarchical relationship according to the tradition of Jews. The rabbi up there, the pupil down here. And the pupils, in many respects, were indentured to the rabbi. But after all they went through together toward the end when, when he was about to be crucified... Just stop and have a listen to what Jesus says to his disciples about friendship. John chapter 15, beginning at verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this, than to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you to do. I don't call you servants any longer, because the servant does not know what the master is doing. But I've called you friends, because I've made known to you everything that I have heard from my Father. You didn't choose me, I chose you. And I appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, so that the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Wow! No longer were they just students. No longer were they like indentured servants or slaves. But in love, they'd become Jesus' friends. And because they were his friends, he was going to show them the greatest act of friendship by literally laying down his life for them. He was opening up his relationship with his father to them by telling them, revealing to them what God was all about in sending Jesus to live and to walk and to speak and to heal and to suffer and to die and to rise again here on this earth. It was in what the Holy Spirit revealed to them about the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ that God's family, the church, was born here on this earth and now lives on through the lives of billions of people every day. And by making them his friends, by making us Jesus' friends, you and me, through this amazing sacrifice of his, he's now calling us as a direct result and consequence of his friendship to go out and to bear fruit, to go out and to change the world, to go out and to be Jesus to a lost and hurting world in desperate need of knowing about and experiencing the amazing love and friendship of God through Jesus Christ. Do you get it? That's why this is the flip side of loving the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength. The second thing is just like the first, love your neighbour as yourself. Have you put your trust in Jesus? If the answer is yes, then you are his friend, no longer an enemy of God, not only his servant but his friend, blessed by the greatest act of friendship in all of history, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, for you. Set free forgiven by the price he paid for you on that cross, set free to live a new life through his victory over death, with the door to the eternal love and friendship of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit flung wide open, the welcome mat put out, the table set, so that forever you can fellowship with your God. Now if that ain't a model of friendship for you and me to live out here on this earth, then I just simply don't know what is. It all started when God called you and God called me to be his friend. It all started because first he loved us. That's what friendship is. Friendship takes the first step. Friendship just doesn't sit there and say, you know, that guy over there is a pain in the neck. There is no way I'm going to serve him. You know what God does? God sometimes points us to that pain in the neck over there and says, go and love that person. Go and serve that person. Go and be Jesus to that person, just in the same way as this Jesus came to this earth to die for you, to suffer for you, so that you may be my friend. This is what God is calling us to, not just to worship him with words, but to worship him with our lives by being someone else's friend. Before we go, I'd like to tell you about a free gift that we'd love to send you to help you experience the power of God more and more in your life. Each month, Bernie writes a new life application booklet around the sorts of issues that we all deal with in life. It's designed to take you deeper into God's Word and then to help you live out what you've discovered. It's about helping you experience God's love and power in your faith walk. To request the latest booklet visit ChristianityWorks.org and you'll see that free offer towards the top of the homepage. I'm believing that it'll be a mighty blessing to you. Again, that web address is ChristianityWorks.org. I'm Jennifer. You've been listening to Christianity Works with Bernie Dimet. And we'll catch you again next time.